So it's, uh, it's movie clips like that that really got us thinking about this whole theme about God behaving badly and kind of inspired us to go this direction over these next few weeks with this series. Um, welcome, everybody. My name's Colin. If I haven't met you before, we're, great to, we're really glad to have you with us today at Anthem. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here, and it's been my privilege just to share on some of these uh, themes for these last couple of weeks and over the next couple of weeks, too. Um, maybe you've, been, uh, you've experienced that angle on God that, like, maybe he's mean. Maybe he's vicious. Maybe he's not as loving and caring as, as I thought, but maybe he has got a dark side. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the Far Side cartoons. Remember those? Um, this uh, one Far Side cartoon always sticks out to me. You know, you've got like God just called God at his computer, it says, and he's just sitting there getting ready to drop a piano on his head, press the smite button, you know, just like we saw in that. You might have seen that Bruce Almighty movie where he's like, smite me, oh mighty smiter. Is God a mean tyrant that just out there waiting uh, to drop a piano on it. It seems like a waste of a good piano to me, but maybe that's people's uh, view that God has it in for us. And, uh, you know, remember, uh, as as I mentioned last week, the name that God gave to his people right at the very beginning, the most common name that is used in the Old Testament to describe, to, to address God is the name that he asked his people to call him by, which is essentially God asking people to call him by his first name. And it was the word, the name Yahweh. And uh, theologians uh, and, and scholars tell us that this this name, this word, this name Yahweh is, is kind of like the sound of our breathing. It's the sound of breath. That the first uh, word, essentially, that we utter the day we are born is the name of God. The name of God who wants to have a relationship with us. And the last word, if you will, that we utter before we die is the name of God. It's, and the, our life is about uttering the name of Yahweh, the name of God. And uh, one, one songwriter said that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the, first, the first thing that we say when we're born. In fact, he said, uh, doubters and deceivers, skeptics and believers, we speak it just the same. From birth to death, every single breath is whispering your name. And so as Chase said earlier last week, we focused on the idea of is God legalistic or is he gracious? And today I want to just ask and hopefully answer this question a little bit. Is God angry or is God loving? Does he have that? tendency to smite people with his computer? Or is he loving? Or is he both? So we're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning that um, is kind of um, obscure, and you may not have heard it before. Some of you may have done, but I want to set it up a little bit first. Uh, We're going to describe a problem here with a character whose name is Uzzah. Uh, Everybody say Uzzah, because it's just fun to say, right? And Uzzah, we're going to call Uzzah... um, Uzzah the loser today because it just seems like he gets himself in a situation that he wasn't planning on. Uh, he also could be described as uh, Uzzah and the Ark. And you're like, wait, no, uh, it's, uh, wasn't it Noah and the Ark? And yes, it was. But don't think like animals two by two flooding. Think the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the Ark of the Covenant. And back in the day, I could just mention, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones, and everybody would know what you're talking about. But there's some younger people here that haven't seen that movie. So Raiders of the Lost Ark was just a, was a, was a Harrison Ford movie that explained, that described archaeologists trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. This Old Testament container, golden and wooden box that carried the very presence of God that was so important to the people of Israel. And um, so Uzzah and the Ark talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And let me describe that, 
that ark for you a little bit. The ark was a, a wooden and golden box um, that carried the Ten Commandments. Um, and it, it, it carried, it was, we've, got, we've got a picture of it, yeah. It carried the Ten Commandments over here. Uh, it carried what was called Aaron's rod, which is where we get the word A-rod, so you've heard of that. And then it carried this, that's not true, it carried this this golden bowl of manna, which was a symbol of the provision that God had given to Israel as they were in the uh, in the. Uh, uh, in, in, in captivity in Egypt. And so all this was in the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, it was carried on these poles here, and then this whole section on top is called the mercy seat, and God met with his people right there on the Ark. Not inside the Ark, you can't keep God in a box, right? But on the box is where, you, where, where God would meet with his people, and the priests would make a, uh, an offering of blood that would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, um, uh, to atone for the sins of the people. But God would meet his people around the Ark of the Covenant. It was an incredibly important piece of furniture or equipment, I suppose. And this, this, this uh, Ark gets stolen by the Philistines. The Philistines are enemies of Israel. So Goliath was a Philistine, and you've heard about him. But they stole the Ark, and then just awful, awful things took place when the Philistines were in possession of the ark. Things I'm not really going to go into today, but terrible things happened when they were in possession of the ark. And now David is king, probably the most famous king of Israel in their history, and he is on a mission to return the ark to its rightful place, to return the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem, to the, the center of, uh, uh, to, to the capital of Israel, and to the place of honor, and a place where, where God's presence is, is, is present again with, with God's people. So we're going to read this little passage of Scripture, and I want to see if you can uh, sort of like spot the kind of perhaps God-behaving-badly moment in it. Okay, so let's read this, 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 8. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Balah in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name the name of the Lord Almighty, that's Yahweh, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, cymbals, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. You've got this group of 30,000 of Israel's strongest men. You know, among them is, this is the fighting men. Among them is a group that were known as David's mighty men, which was 35 of the strongest warriors, David's special forces in the kingdom of Israel. And some of these guys were guys that you do not want to mess with. These guys were bad, 
dudes, okay? Like, you don't mess with David's mighty men. There's various stories about these guys through the Old Testament. One of them particularly, uh, the Bible says his name was Benaiah, and he killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. It's kind of all it says. It's just he's got his, like, name in lights in that verse. You know, he was just walking around. It was, a, it was snowing. He thought, you know, I got the day off. Why not? Sees a lion, kills it. He hadn't killed anybody recently. So these are bad guys. And then uh, there's the 35 of those and then 30,000 of Israel's fighting men. This was, the, uh, this was the warriors of that generation. And David is leading this crowd, and they are celebrating. They're having an enormous parade, a bigger party you couldn't imagine. I don't know if you've ever been in a worship service with thousands of people. I've probably been in worship events that kind of size before. But we have stadiums now, right? So it's a lot easier. But this is 30,000 men, masculine, strong dudes, and they are all celebrating, the Bible says, with all their might. So we're going to stand and celebrate with all our... No, we won't do that. But like, it's just like an interesting verse that these guys are going for it. However they're celebrating, it's with absolutely everything they've got. And I don't know if you've been to a, a Jewish wedding before, um, but they know how to party. Like, like in America, we, our, our weddings are kind of lame, right? It's all the same thing every time, and it's a DJ. It's like, oh, great. And it's like, you know, everything, it's just like, it's not that great. But in the Israeli culture, they know how to celebrate. Right? And it goes on forever. Now, I'm, I'm married into a kind of part Egyptian family. And, um, uh, you know, our engagement party wasn't in Egypt. This is from Fresno. But our, our engagement party and wedding was in, was in uh, very much in the Egyptian culture. And our engagement party particularly was all Egyptian people, Middle Eastern, I suppose, North African uh, people. And they know how to party like many of us here don't know how to party. This thing went on from noon till midnight. Okay, it was a 12-hour party, and I was like the British guy that just got here, clueless as to what I just entered and realized I am out of place. But there's this group of people here celebrating with absolutely everything they've got because they're bringing the thing that represents God's presence in the purest form back into its honored place, into the city of God, where David is, is ruling over the people of Israel, and he's saying, listen, this is about God. I think uh, some... Uh, some of, 11 of the Psalms, out of the 150 Psalms, 11 of those Psalms, they think, were specifically written about this one parade, about this one event. And so this becomes kind of a troubling story because it appears that because of the smallest act, God lost it in front of 30,000 people at his own party. And what happened is that you've got Uzzah, who is... Who is uh, close to the ark, and the ark is on a cart, and they're doing their best to steady this thing, and all of a sudden, it seems like the oxen stumbles, and, U- uh, and Uzzah puts his hand out to steady the ark of the covenant on, on the cart, to stop it from hitting the dirt, and God kills him instantly. God takes him out, wastes Uzzah's life in a second. Why to rain on a parade, Right? Can you imagine all of us? You know when you're at an event and the music has to stop kind of uncomfortably because something weird happened? Uh, You imagine the instruments and the the timbrels and the tambourines just like gradually stopping as this crowd realizes, hey, what happened? Oh, Uzzah just dropped dead. Why? God killed him. Why? He tried to steady the ark. It just seems like that would have been a reflex action 
that Uzzah's intent would excuse me Uzzah's intent would have been to try and protect the presence of God in that instance but God finishes Uzzah off right there and then like have you ever been in that place where like maybe you're sitting at the table and for us it was when our kids were small and a plate is about to fall off the table you know and it's covered in food or a glass full of juice or something and you know as the plate's about to fall off the table you don't think to yourself there is a plate that is about to fall off a table. Gravity will exert itself as the plate sinks onto the carpet and the sausages and the mashed potatoes and the gravy will be everywhere. I should do something. No, like in, a, in an instant, you're there, you respond right away and the plate gets saved and the, the, you know, the, the, uh, everything, there's no mess. This situation seemed like it was just a reflex action that shouldn't have been judged by God. And then as it goes on, verse 9, it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day, what a shock, and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Wait, 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 hold on a minute. So we've got one guy getting wasted by the Ark of the Covenant uh, just because he puts his hand out. And then Obed-Edom gets blessed for three months because this thing's out the back of his house. So imagine this situation that, that David and his mighty men and the, the, the 30,000 uh, Israelite soldiers there with their tambourines and an Ark of the Covenant, which like, quite frankly by this stage they're a little nervous of. They're like, they don't want to carry on with the day. They're like, let's leave this somewhere. So they go up to Obed-Edom's house. Um, hi, Obed. Um, my friends and I, we were, we were wondering, um, we have this piece of equipment here, and we just wonder if we could leave it at your place for a while. We're not going to get to where we were going to go to today, and so we thought we could just leave it with you for a while. You know I'm King David, right? So that should be okay with you. And Obed Edom was probably like, sure. I mean, why wouldn't I just respond to the request of my king for leaving whatever this is right here? And at one point, I wonder if Obed said something like, um, what's, what's with that guy back there? Like, the, the dude that's being like, held up by the other two guys that looks like he's, he's really not well, sort of looking like a bad reenactment of Weekend at Bernie's, and the poor dead Uzo is at the back there, and he's like, just, like, what is going on? And they're like, well, Uzo's, uh, Uzo's not feeling very well. <laughs> he's had a particularly bad day, but listen, this ark thing, just leave it in the garage, don't touch it, try not to look at it, put it back there. And, uh, and I can imagine Uzzah just think, uh, sorry, uh, Obed-Edom, you know, even inviting neighbors over that he didn't like. You know, oh, take a look at this thing. You know, you really got to touch it. You really got to check it out. Just, just roll your hands over this thing and see what it's like. All in all, it's just this, this, this odd contradiction between Uzzah being, being smited in a, with a moment's notice and then Obed-Edom, his, his household being blessed because this thing's in his garage. Like, we can't figure out, we can't make sense of that. And honestly, there's been times when I've looked at this passage of Scripture, and even still, there's parts of it that I still want to say, God, I wish you could have handled that differently. We're, we're like that. We want God to have dealt differently with people. But there's some things that I think are important for us to understand that might help us make sense of it. The terms of God's covenantal relationship with his people are of utmost importance to God. 
Have you ever like received an app on your phone or downloaded a piece of software or something, and, and you've got to like scroll down the terms and conditions? You've never read those terms and conditions once, right? You're like, get me to the bottom. I want to play whatever game it is that you're downloading or any new Apple product that you buy. You've got to get past this. So you, you know, I think the terms of our relationship with God that he has put in place are of utmost importance, that they are not just things to be blown off. You know, in Exodus 25, God gave specific direction on how the ark was to be built and how it was to be created. So Exodus 25.10, it says, Have them make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half, uh, and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four ring, gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and with two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. And then put, the ark in the t- put, the ark, put in the ark the tablets of the covenant law, which I will give you. Really specific rules about about a box upon which, the God, upon which God's presence dwells. Another passage talks about the way that it should be transported. It says in Numbers 4.15, After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. But they must not touch the holy things or they will die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent. Of meeting. So here you've got this particular clan in a particular tribe of Israel that is the only group of people allowed to carry this Ark of the Covenant and to be responsible for its transportation. And then he's, God asks specifically for this thing to be put on poles. So let's just take a look at that picture. Ryan, if you've got that picture of the Ark of the Covenant again, if you can pull that up, boom. Like you've got this thing that's got these, these, these poles going through these rings that was specifically the way that God had asked for the Ark of the Covenant to be carried. You know, have you ever seen one of those movies where you see a king or a queen, royalty, being, being carried in a similar way on poles in a, a, a carriage, but not, this, not being pulled by a horse? It's on poles that people are carrying. That, those people, those servants, would be called a litter. And uh, traditionally, that was the way that kings or royalty or any, any dignitary of anything of extreme value would be carried. Uh, a cart was for cargo. So a litter was for kings and a cart was for things. All right, I am a poet and I know it. Okay, we'll move on. But, um, but this, a cart was, a, was an insult. You, if you were to put a, a, a king in a cart... That would be kind of like me, me uh, saying, oh, Lenny, I'm going to pick you up from the airport. And Lenny coming out of the Delta Terminal with his suitcase and me opening the trunk and say, Lenny, let's put your, your luggage in the trunk. And then saying, Lenny, why don't you get in the trunk? Like it would be like completely unheard of for somebody to do something like that, for somebody to put uh, a person who they honor and respect in the trunk with the cargo. And this wasn't a single act of God just like losing the plot, like, oh, I'm done with you people. But it was the, the end of a continual downward spi- spiral of, of people veering away from God's requirements on how his presence was to be, was to be handled. Imagine if you were su- uh, supposed to be transporting plutonium. 
Like, you've got to get plutonium from one place to another. And despite what Doc Brown said in Back to the Future, in 1985, plutonium is not found in every corner drugstore, all right? Like, it's not something that we can just move around and deal with ourselves. In fact, if you go to the, uh, to the, to the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and I have because I'm a nerd, you can go there online and you can find out specifically how plutonium is supposed to be transported and carried by land or by air or anything like that because you're dealing with a serious, powerful chemical. Which do you think is most powerful? Plutonium or the presence and power of Almighty God? It's, it's a no-brainer. God created. One, you know, one was created by the other. But God's power God's presence meant so much, was so significant, that God had left specific instructions on how it should be transported. Now, we know this, that Uzzah did not receive, did not experience God's mercy that day. Right? Pretty obvious. He did not receive God's mercy that day. But he also did not receive injustice. He was dealt with justly according to God's holiness. Uzzah was dealt with justly. And we want to understand everything, don't we, about God's love. We want to describe and discuss and know God as a God of love in our lives. But we can only really understand God as a God of love when we have a respect and an understanding of His holiness and His justice. God had given specific instructions on multiple occasions for the way that his presence should be handled. And if you're like me, there's been times most of my life has been spent, and I don't verbalize this, I don't say it out loud, but I know I'm essentially saying, God, I know you said do it this way, but I think I know better. I want to do it this way. I want to completely reject the obvious chain of authority, chain of command here, and I want to let God know that I know better. We as a community, we as a nation, regularly make choices where we say, God, we know better. People do this all the time. And again, I don't think we verbalize it, but we gradually want to veer away from God's ways. We, we don't, you know, we, we could be saying, I know there's, there's explicit detail on how you've asked me to handle this situation in my life. I'm sure it doesn't really matter if I do it slightly differently. If I just adjust your, your slightly flawed plan just one bit to make it better, we don't get to define how God's justice works. I, we don't truly understand it, but we don't get to define how God's justice wor- works. Is he a God of anger? Yes, sometimes. We saw in this situation with user that the, the, the Lord's anger burned against user. God is a God of anger. And God is a God of justice. And it sounds harsh to us and it's hard for us to take. But remember this, throughout the scriptures and even through the, the Old Testament, Yahweh is described as one who is slow to anger. There's a, there's a bunch of verses that describe him as slow to anger. Let's throw these up. Uh, Numbers 14 says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Jonah said, I knew that you are a gracious God and, com- and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. There's that phrase again. A God who relents from sending calamity. That's never God's 
initial reaction to send calamity. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And you've got this theme throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history, throughout the, the prophetic scriptures, and throughout the poetry of the, poetry of the Old Testament as well, where God is regularly described, Yahweh is regularly described as being someone who is slow to anger. Anger is not his tendency, but he's abounding in love. That's the God that we serve today. He is abounding and wants his, his intent and his desire is to pour love upon his people. The, the actual translation for that word is to describe Yahweh as being long in nose. I know that's a little odd, but the, the, the word is translated long in nose, which basically means, and it's the only thing that God and I kind of have in common, you know, but like it's, the, the only, it's, it's a description of the fact that it would take a long time for the nostrils to flare up, or at least this is the best understanding of the translation, that, that God's tendency is not to be angry right away, but it's sort of a last resort. The character of God, the nature of God is one who is, who is slow to anger. And finally, I just want to say, I think that we have a tendency to be people who take God for granted and take God's mercy for granted. I was 16 when I first read this passage of Scripture here. And it was because I was at a, a Christian conference in a huge tent with 5,000 people listening to uh, messages like these. And I heard a message on this passage of Scripture. And it's stuck with me ever since. And um, it was the first time I heard it preached about by a, a guy, an American pastor named C.J. Mahaney, who was visiting uh, the U.K. at the time. And he asked this question, and this question stuck with me for 36 years or whatever it's been. Stuck with me, like, when we, when we look at this passage of Scripture, we're often asking the wrong question. We're asking the question, why did Uzzah get killed? When we should be asking this, why am I still alive? We should be wondering, not so much like this guy got wasted, but what have I done that I deserve life? I've done far worse than, it feels like I've done far, far worse than a quick reflex action to steady something that was important to God. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin, like the result of the work of our lives is, of sin is death, that our, that our penalty, that, that our payment for what we've done, who we are, is death, so it shouldn't be a shock to us. What should be a shock to us is that we're allowed to live, that we're allowed to exist. We're so used to God's mercy and to experiencing God's mercy that we forget that he's a God of justice. And what we should be is that we're so aware, and the posture that we should take is that we're so aware of God's justice and his holiness that we become in awe of his mercy. That when we experience God's mercy, we can do nothing but fall on our faces and be ready to worship Him. Forgetting everything that's around us, forgetting every way that anybody else would want us to live, but saying, I will fall at the feet of Jesus because I know that He has been merciful to me. A, a rotten and stinking sinner who doesn't deserve God's mercy in any way. Uzzah died that day because he demonstrated that his belief was his hand was more holy than the dirt. He, he made it clear that he thought it would be better for him to touch the, the, the ark than for the ark to touch the dirt, to touch the ground. But what he didn't realize is that his life, his hand, everything about him was in rebellion to God. The dirt was not. 
Is the God of the Old Testament angry? Or is the God of the New Testament loving? Is the God of the Old Testament loving? Is the God of the New Testament angry? Honestly, I believe that the, that the true answer is yes to all those four questions. God's character has never changed. He's always been the same. But he's always had a, a desire to cover our sin and create a pathway for relationship with him. Even right at the very beginning, you know, this story about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're told, you know, you can remember from last week that what were their two commands? Have a lot of sex and eat a lot of food, right? Their two commands were like, go forth in the world and multiply. And, oh, you can eat from all of these trees in the garden. By the way, this one, don't touch that one. What do they do? They touch that one. They sin. They, they take a step away from God. All of a sudden, they re- their, their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. And the Bible says that God, God made for them... Uh, clothing out of animal skins. So what had to happen? An animal had to die, had to be a sacrifice in order for the covering of Adam and Eve, in order for their, for, for their shame to be covered and for relationship with God to begin to be restored. God created a covering using the, 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 the sacrifice of a dead animal. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. There's no covering for sin without the shedding of blood. And that day was the first day when God showed, there is a way back to me. And it's going to be through sacrifice. At the proper time, God sent Jesus to satisfy his own need for justice and to create the final sacrifice for our sins. Jesus satisfied God's requirement for justice, for a price to be paid. And it wasn't God sending a messenger. It wasn't God just writing a script and sending somebody a note to do something from heaven, sending Jesus, oh, go down to earth, will you, and fix this. It was God sending himself, coming to die in our place himself. He's the judge, and he has a need for justice, and yet he's a compassionate father, ready to give his own son and send the the Son, the second person of the Trinity to earth to create the final sacrifice for our lives. And I want to just use this final illustration to make this point. But um, on February 15th, uh, not yesterday, but on February 15th, 1921, so that would have been, that's 99 years ago yesterday, on this day in history, one of those things, just discovered this yesterday, Evan O'Neill Kane, a surgeon, carried out his own appendectomy in an attempt to prove the efficacy of local anesthesia for such operations. So Evan O'Neill Kane did a, uh, where is it? Over here, right? He did a, an appendectomy on himself using local anesthesia. It had been believed until then that you couldn't uh, do local anesthesia for such a procedure. But Evan O'Neill Kane was convinced that you could do a local anesthesia for something like that. And so he you know, offered the services to other people. And they're like, no, I'm good. It's never been done. Let's use somebody else as the guinea pig. Um, for now, I'm just going to take like, the full you know, sleepy juice. And of course, back then, even more than now, something like that has complications and has risks. And so to be able to do a procedure with local anesthetic is huge. So Evan O'Neill Kane did his own appendectomy, and it was successful. He's believed to have been the first surgeon to have done so. Why do I tell you that? What happened that day is that the doctor became the patient so that the patients could trust the doctor. 
And God became a man and became the sacrifice for our sin so that we could understand how all this works, so that we could easily put our faith, our dependence, and our trust in Him because we know He's able. God took His own perfect Son and poured out His, poured out my rebellion and poured out my sin on His own Son. How could that be? It should be something that, that brings us to our knees, puts us on our faces, the awareness that God... Isaiah 53 said it pleased the Father that, that Jesus, that the Son should suffer. And it, often it says it, it was the Lord's will for him to suffer. But in one translation of the, of the Bible, it says that it pleased the Father that the Son should suffer. And I, I cannot get my head around that. As long as I've been following Jesus, I can't imagine that it pleased God to allow his Son to suffer. But in comparison to what he wanted for us, for the relationship that he wanted for us. He was willing to do that. We're going to close today by singing a song um, that I believe has some of the greatest song lyrics of, of any song of worship that's been written in the last 25 years. And it's a song called How Deep the Father's Love. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son and make a wretch his treasure. And I, I'm going to ask you all to stand up in, in a moment and join with us as we sing it. But I want us to, to think about the last verse for a moment. It says, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. You know, this kind of boast is not a word that we use very much, is it? We normally say, I brag about something, or I show off, or I'm proud of something. But it's so easy for us to boast in our stuff, our gifts, our power, our wisdom, what we've got. Like, honestly, if we had a, a our spiritual resume, is a blank sheet of paper, right? We come to God with nothing. And somehow God touches that, that resume, and that white piece of paper becomes red as the the wounds that Jesus suffered cover all of it and it becomes blood stained so that our relationship with God can be restored and we can spend eternity with him and I want to ask all of you today I want to challenge all of you have you have you have you handed that that blank resume to God or are you still trying to write stuff on it are you still trying to say I've achieved this I've got this to offer I can do this I, God I'm okay I'm, I'm going to do it my way your way's great but my way's just slightly better or are you willing to hand a blank sheet of paper to God and say Jesus will you cover it with your hand and will you let your blood stained hand permeate every area of my life let's stand together and we'll close today with this song and I'll come up in a moment